We're looking at James chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 14 through 26. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Give me a jump forward to page 4, if you're looking at it in the handout. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Verse 17. Thus also that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith by your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Verse 20. But you do not but do you want to know, O foolish man, that that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that that faith was working together with his works by works and by works that faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? You may be seated. Oh, sorry, forgive me, please remain one more second, I'm sorry, forgive me. Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so that faith without works is dead also. Forgive me. You may be seated. Alright. So, we've been going through the first page of the handout. um, Shows the outline of the book of James. The book of James is organized in a literary unit called a chiasm. Okay, And that basically, you know, chiasm is an X. Chi is an X. And so the idea is you can look at the outline on page one and you see it's sort of like you know, backwards C shape, right? So that's what it's pointing to. So the center of the book is verses 14 to 26. And all around it, it's talking about issues relating to church life. And so the center section here, if you look at the context, is very plainly talking about the idea of a profession of faith. And it's not talking about the nature of faith itself. Uh, when we go to page two, we have sort of the the thesis of the book, and the thesis of the book that's given to us is about the idea of the testing of faith and patience, and the importance of avoiding doubt, and how important it is to have knowledge rather than doubting, to have faith rather than doubting, because if you have a stable faith, because you know what God's Word says, then you are able to avoid being blown about by every wind of doctrine. It talks about the power of a prayer with faith. So, we get into this center portion. And last time I walked through the text and tried to show you a number of things in terms of the grammar of it and so forth. And today my intention 
is to deal with a number of issues in terms of wrong interpretations, but to also remind you of key things. My goal here, remember, this is the text that everybody brings out to attack the gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the the centerpiece of that attack. And whenever you know that somebody is going to fight you and they're going to have an opening move that's a right jab, if you don't know how to stop a right jab, you're an idiot. Right? You, if you know every time they attack you, they're going to give you a right jab, know how to block a right jab. So this is the right jab. Let's learn how to block it. So you need to be well aware of this. If you deal with any sort of effort by somebody who claims to be a Christian of whatever variety, whether they pretend to be a Christian as a Mormon or as a Jehovah's Witness or as a Roman Catholic or as an Eastern Orthodox or Neo-Orthodox, whatever they do, and they're not presenting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they go to James chapter 2 to tell you justification is by faith and works, if you're not ready for it, this sermon puts that on you. And so you should make sure that you understand how to defend against this. So, let's look through. Let's run through the verses, and then we're going to talk through some other things that occur in the Reformed world. So, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, remember, that word that, the definite article, he or ho in the Greek, that helps us to understand this is referring back. The saying he has faith. The whole section is set off by context that we're not talking about faith itself. We're talking about a profession of faith. He says he has faith. And what's the profit? The profit of it is nothing. The word profit or usefulness is all over the wisdom literature of the Bible. James is wisdom literature of the New Testament. Go look at the book of Ecclesiastes. It talks about uselessness, uselessness, or vanity, vanity, right? That type of idea. The, the idea of not generating a profit. If you make a confession of faith and then you do not seek to apply the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, your profession will bring shame on the gospel, on the church, on the Lord of the church. It will bring shame onto you. It's not profitable. So, does that mean that you can't be justified by faith? No. But you will not live a profitable life. So this is an encouragement to live a profitable life. And so then it says, can that faith save him? That faith, the word that or the is present in the Greek. So you have the idea of that faith, a definite article. What's talked about? The profession, the profession of faith. So the idea is, can that save him? Save him from what? If you read a Roman Catholic apologist on this text, they will always point to that word saved and say, see, this is a salvific context. Well, salvific from what? The Lord Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God. He also saves us from sin and the dominion of it over us. And he saves us from worthless, boring lives. What is James talking about? He's talking about being saved from uselessness. He's talking about being profitable as opposed to useless. So the idea of being saved from a useless life. Now, we also talked about, this is important. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about mental ascent. And they'll say, you know, faith is not just a mental ascent. Yes, it is. Faith is just a mental ascent. It's just thinking something's true. Faith is not a verbal ascent. And we confuse those sometimes. So you remember we looked at Isaiah 29:13. It contrasts the lips with the heart. Nowhere in the scriptures, and I offered you all $1,000 last week, if you can find me one text in the Bible, one text that shows a contrast 
between the head and the heart. I'll give you $1,000. I'll pay you that day. I'll go to the ATM right away. I will give you the money. There is no text in the Bible that contrasts the head and the heart. Not one. And people will quote this. And when they do, from now on, you should go, why are you twisting the scriptures to your own destruction? Look what Isaiah 29.13 says. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. The lip and the heart, the mouth and the heart, those are contrasted. The inward man versus the outward man. There is no head-heart distinction here. The point is not that you can miss heaven by 12 inches, the distance between the head and the heart. That is false. If you believe the gospel, if you assent to the truth of the gospel, you believe the promises, you believe Christ is who he says he is, and you believe that there's nothing else you have to do, that's saving faith. Justification is by faith alone. Now, We've also talked about how people will try to make it into more in terms of the head-heart distinction. They'll try to say, you have to understand the doctrine, you have to believe it's true, and then there's something else. Something else. And they'll, they'll use the Latin word fiducia, or they'll say you have to understand and believe and trust, or you'll, you'll have whatever. I'll tell you what, if you trust something, it means you believe things about it. If you trust a man, you believe he's telling you the truth. Or you believe he's seeking your good. Trusting a person is not some different psychological activity beyond believing truth claims. That's all it is. If you understand the gospel, understand who Jesus says he is, understand the promises of the gospel, understand that there's nothing else that a person has to do besides believing, and that that's a gift, then you are trusting in, you are resting in the gospel, you are resting in Jesus Christ, you are trusting in Jesus Christ. That's belief. There is not some complex psychological series of activities that has to be analyzed. If you look to the gospel and you believe it's true and you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and you believe it applies to you, those are all just thinking truths. And if you're doing those things in your mind, you're saved. Because you couldn't do them unless the Holy Spirit gave that to you. That faith is a gift. Now, if you're looking around for the right experience, the right emotion, the right feeling, the right actions, trying to see if you spoke in tongues, was your baptism valid, none of those things is the grounds of your justification before God. And none of those things is the instrument of justification before God. The grounds of our righteousness is the obedience of Jesus Christ. And the instrument of our justification is faith alone, so that it's not of works, so that only God can boast. That is why. It's for his glory. Now, verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? The word prophet is brought up again. Remember, the word prophet here reminds us about the fact that something is useful or useless. Is this saying if somebody's hungry and you don't feed him, you're going to go to hell? What does it profit you? Nothing, because you go to hell. Right? That's not what it's saying. It's saying 
You say be warmed and filled. You say a blessing, but then you don't give him anything. How sincere is your blessing if you've got it? And how useful is that? Doesn't it actually bring doubt onto that? Doesn't it actually make the church look like hypocrites if you say be warmed and filled and then don't help? What use is that? And so the idea of profitableness is brought up again. So look here. Think about the similarity between the profession of the desire to bless without giving anything to help to the profession of faith without doing good works. That is the analogy. And they're very, very similar. A profession of blessing versus works of blessing and a profession of faith versus works of faith. And so if you don't have both, then it causes doubt from a human perspective on the profession of blessing or faith. Go to page 5. Verse 17. Thus also, and it seems like we're still printing outlines, is that right? Is anybody not, can you raise your hand if you don't have an outline real quickly so people can know? Okay, raise it high. Okay, so, okay, great. So we'll still get some out. Okay, verse 17. Thus also, that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so the Greek has the that, right? It has hey. And so that word hey is referring to, is the word that. It's a definite article. And so the idea is that faith, the faith that we were talking about before, the profession of faith, and then it says that faith, and that faith, and that faith, right? It's keeping the chain for us. It's helping us to understand that we're still talking about the same thing. It doesn't make any sense to go from profession to faith itself. We are having a line of argument about judging a profession. So, the word thus shows us it's an argument. It's a connection. Arguments don't work when you change what you're talking about. Right? If I say, you know, Lamborghinis are really fast, thus, Hondas will impress people with their speed. Right? That argument doesn't make any sense. If I change the subject I'm talking about, why does that argument hold? It doesn't. Do you think that James inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making an argument where he changes the subject? Just trying to throw a fast one in there real quick. We're talking about profession, switch it over to faith. The line of argumentation doesn't hold if he changes subject from profession. He's talking about a profession of faith. So the word thus helps us to see that it goes backward. And the word that helps us to see that the word faith is going back to the profession of faith. Thus also that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the profession of faith is dead. A profession is a dead profession unless it's joined by works. This is not about the nature of saving faith. This is about the nature of a credible profession. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. And the New King James says, without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. So what I've done, you'll notice I've got all these weird squiggly lines. It looks like it's something out of Tolkien. It's Greek. Okay? The point there is it's Greek. So it's Greek to you? That's great. But it's Greek, and I want to show you some things. I forgot this last week, and Logan reminded me after I was preaching. He's like, why didn't you bring up this thing? I was like, I totally forgot. I just forgot about it. So he reminded me. What happened one time in family worship, we were going through the book of James. I was reading from the New King James, and Ethan, my other son, was reading out of the Geneva Bible. 
And the Geneva Bible basically said, I've actually got it here, I think. Yeah, go to page 6. The Geneva Bible says, But some man might say, You have the faith, and I have works. Show me your faith out of your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So Ethan said, you know, hey, this makes it a lot more clear. Um, that was the kind of the discussion. And then we went to it and we discussed it further. And we looked into it and we realized, wow, the majority of Greek manuscripts have a different word there than the word without. Okay, so if you go back to page 5, I've got in orange highlight, the word without, it's crossed out, and the, the Greek word is chorus. Now, this doesn't necessarily demonstrate, even if the word is there, last week I forgot about this thing, and we just were showing how it doesn't require you to interpret this text as saying justifications by faith and works. But this makes it even more clear. The word that's there in the Greek is ek, okay, which means out of, or by, or from. And you see it the second time. You see how I've got it highlighted twice in the Greek there? So, you see how in, this, in the later part, it's, I will show you my faith by my works. Well, that's, that's the point of the first part as well. And it makes the sentence way easier to get, way easier to understand. So here's what the sentence is. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me the faith that is yours by your works, and I will show you the faith that is mine by my works. Do you see how that just totally fits with everything James has been saying? And it's so much easier to understand. And it's what the majority of Greek manuscripts say. What's disheartening is normally, normally the New King James Bible and most other of the modern prints in English will tell you when there's a textual variant. They'll tell you that, right? And you'll have a little footnote down there and it'll say M, and it'll tell you what the majority text says. It doesn't have it for this. It's crazy. I don't understand why. But so you can, you can look this up. You can look it up online yourself. You can literally... If you want to, we'll give you the handout in a digital form. You can copy and paste this line into it in the Greek, and you'll find Google will give you the manuscripts that have this. Okay, So you can, you can check on this. This is what the majority of Greek manuscripts have. So look at point 19, okay, bottom of page 5. Is the hypothetical person speaking a supporter or an objector to James? He's a supporter of James at the point. He's saying... He's making the same point that James is. He's contrasting the idea of a profession without work or blessing without work. And what he's saying is faith with a work or blessing with a work makes it credible. That's how you show. He's supporting James's position. All right, go to verse 19, page 6. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So remember this. People will always quote this and they'll say, See, even demons have faith. Justification is not by faith alone. First of all, demons are not justified by grace. Angels are not justified by grace. Righteous angels are justified not by the mediation of Jesus Christ. How are they counted as right? They're counted as righteous by their own works. Righteous angels obey perfectly forever. 
if this is an argument about the doctrine of justification before God, then James is making a bad argument. He's saying, because demons aren't justified by faith, therefore you're not justified by faith. What? That doesn't hold at all. That argument doesn't hold at all. The demons are condemned because of their law-breaking, and the righteous angels are justified because of their law-keeping. What is the point? The point is, you believe that there's one God. Okay, This is either a reference to monotheism, which is obviously not the same as the gospel, or it's a reference to the Shema, which we just read. Let me, let me read it to you. Look at, look at footnote 21a. Not footnote, sorry. Point 21a. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So if this is a reference to the Shema, then you might say, okay, you believe the doctrine of the Bible. You believe what the God of the Bible says. Okay? If that's the case, then James is saying, you believe the gospel... Well, the demons also believe, and they tremble. And that's not enough to be saved, so you need to add works to it. And if that's what James is saying, let's just admit that he plainly contradicts the rest of Scripture. He plainly contradicts Paul. He plainly contradicts his own teaching that if you're a breaker of the law in one point, then you're a breaker of the whole. He plainly contradicts his earlier position that the implanted word is what saves, not works. Right, so if we, if we have those things, then we need to realize that the Bible contradicts itself. Christianity is false. Let's find something else. Move on. Go someplace else. So if that's the case, right, then the Bible is false. But that doesn't make sense. The line of argument doesn't change from profession of faith. It's throughout the same argument. And what he's saying is, okay, you believe, you, you claim to believe that God is one. Great. Good job. Good job confessing the true faith. Even the demons profess. You know where else you see this? Demons disguise themselves as angels of light. That's what it says in Galatians. They come along and they say, I believe that Jesus is Lord too. And the smile and the sparkle off the teeth and the wink of the eye and it's very persuasive. And you know what? Their profession of faith is so persuasive that when they say it, they tremble. I believe Jesus is Lord too. Got the feels. The demons display all of it. Very persuasive stuff. That's not enough. What do the demons do? They go around deceiving. They go around destroying. They go around killing. They murder souls. They hate God. Their profession is to be judged as false because their works are a testimony against them. The demons believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe in trouble. Okay, this gets thrown at people all the time. And the person doesn't understand the context. They haven't studied it hard. They're looking for a proof text as a pretext to be able to say that justification is by faith and works. You believe that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe. So the question is, do the demons believe or do they profess belief? If they believe, then they have eternal life. If they believe, they have eternal life. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that you know the true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. If they believe, they have eternal life. 
If they have eternal life, then why are they condemned? How are they condemned? What's their punishment? They're spiritual beings. They're not sitting around being poked by stuff. Their torment is a spiritual torment. Their torment is the torment of believing falsehood, deceiving themselves, living useless lives. That's the torment. So, do they believe or do they profess belief? And what are they believing in or professing belief in? Monotheism or in the gospel? If they just believe monotheism, fine. They're Muslims or Jews or whatever. That's not a saving faith. You can believe in monotheism and not be saved. Believing that there's one God is not sufficient. But if it's the Shema, if it's talking about that they believe the gospel, well, then we just have a contradiction. If, however, it's saying that they profess to believe the gospel, then we realize that we're talking about profession. And we're talking about judging a profession. And so you need to be careful and realize that just like demons give a false profession, so do fallen people. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that that faith without works is dead? So in the Greek you have Oti, Hoti, and then you have hey. So it's, do you want to know, O foolish man, that that faith without works is dead? You have two different words for that. One is sort of the, um, do you want to understand that, versus you know that thing. Okay, that's the two ways the word that is being used there. So in the Greek, it's different. In English, we have the same word twice. That that. And so, the idea here, do you want to know, O foolish man, that that faith without works is dead? Remember, the faith we're talking about is a profession of faith. So do you want to know that that profession is dead if it doesn't have works? So look at point 23. A profession without works is a dead profession and is evidence of a dead faith. A dead profession is a profession without any life in it. And the analogy that James uses later is that Works are like the spirit of a profession. They are the life of it. And so the profession is not to be seen as credible if it doesn't have works. Dead faith is faith in anything other than the true gospel. Eternal life is the knowledge of God. So spiritual life, spiritual death is belief in anything else as a substitute. A dead faith gives a dead profession with dead works. And in case you didn't think there was such a thing as dead works, Hebrews talks about dead works in chapter 6 and chapter 9. What are dead works? Dead works are works where you're trying to do something not for the glory of God, not out of obedience to a commandment of God, and if you're trying to do it for your own justification, if you try to do a work in order to get right with God, that's a dead work because our righteousnesses are filthy rags. So if we try to do a work to get justified before God, that shows that we're not resting in Christ. It shows that we think we've got to add something. We don't believe the gospel. If you do it out of a superstition, as opposed to out of what God commands, that's not out of faith. It's a dead work. And if you're doing it to glorify yourself or anything else, and not glorify God, you've got the wrong goal in mind. It's a dead work. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that that faith was working together with his works 
and by works, that faith was made perfect. So, what have we been talking about the whole time? What's that faith? That faith is the profession of faith, back at the beginning of the section. And the word that keeps pointing us back, so we know over and over again we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about that faith, the, the profession of faith. So Abraham was justified before men when he did good works. When he offered Isaac on an altar, that was evidence that it is something men can see. God doesn't need to see evidence that you're believing. God reads the heart. And in fact, God's the one that gives you faith. He isn't waiting around to determine whether you have faith or not. He determined from eternity past that you would. He knows it because he chose it. He doesn't have to look for the evidence of it. He causes the evidence. Ephesians says that he predestines us to walk in good works. Why? So that we can display his glory. So this is evidence to human beings. It is not evidence to God. This is a justification in the sight of men, not a justification before God. If that's the case, this is justification before God, then we're going to look at what Paul says about the exact same text. Okay, So we're going to compare and contrast here. So was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that that faith was working together with his works, and by works, that faith was made perfect. It was made complete. A profession of faith is not complete until it is adorned with the glory of good works. A profession of faith is to be accepted when somebody makes it until they act in a way that contradicts it. But we want to make a profession and then we want to give the second witness of good works because that way the world will hear what we are saying and they will think this is not a den of hypocrites. Instead, what they will say is, these people mean what they say. There is reason to stop and listen. They live in a way that is better than the way other people live. And so, how can we have this good life? How can we have this wisdom? What is this wisdom that makes lives like these? That is what our works do. So the question is, how do we deal with Paul and James? If they are opposing each other, first, this is an error, and it forces us to reject Scripture as contradictory. Another error that is commonly brought up, this is Rome's position, is that there's an initial justification, you're justified before God, and then you can lose that, or you can have a final justification based upon your works on the Day of Judgment. This is also the same position that is put forward by the Auburn Avenue or Federal Vision. So you have to be careful inside of, inside of Reformed churches, you have to see, does somebody actually hold to that confession or not? Just because it has Reformed written on the door or Presbyterian written on the door or they say they hold the Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't mean that they're teaching that doctrine. You have to judge the pulpit. It is your job to hear the teaching and to judge it. Every one of you is responsible before God to judge the teaching you hear. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians says, let one prophesy and let the others judge. Everybody who's listening to that teaching is to judge. 
One other thing that's common, you'll have uh, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright puts forward the idea that Paul is saying the works of the ceremonial law are not necessary for justification, but James is talking about works of the moral law. This is an error. It makes a mess of Galatians and Romans, if you study it. I have given a teaching series on Romans in the past. You can go back and go through that. But the point is, it makes a mess of those books, and it also makes a mess of James, because James is teaching us about forgiveness apart from the law, earlier on in the book. So, works that are done before regeneration, this is the other position. They'll say, well, dead works are works that are before regeneration, and we have works that are done after regeneration. And this is another error, because of the problem of Romans and Galatians. That's plainly not what's taught there. But also, look at this from Luke chapter 18. I want to show you an example of this. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Here's a parable of Jesus. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Okay, look at that. Trusting in yourself that you are righteous, that you do good works. Your own righteousnesses. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Guy praying next to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Okay, so notice this. What is this guy saying? He's thanking God that he's not like other men. What does that mean? He recognizes that his good works are not from himself, but they're from God. This is not a my own self-generated-from-the-flesh-good-works Pharisee. This is my own good works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit Pharisee. If you think your evangelical obediences, the things that you do because God causes you to do them, the things that are done by the work of the Spirit in you, if you think those things are the grounds of your justification, that is not the biblical doctrine. It is not the Protestant doctrine. Good works caused by God are not the instrument of justification before God. Go to verse 13. What does the tax collector do? And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You have to condemn yourself and say, my works are trash, they're rubbish. I am not righteous by my own works. I am a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. You appeal to God, appealing to his mercy, not pointing to your own works, not God-caused works, not your works. The only view that has a harmonious reading of James and Paul is the Protestant view. So, what I want us to do is to first go with me. Actually, I want to read to you verse 23 and 24 real fast. Let's do that. So, go to page 9. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So, how do we deal with that? Right, that verse 24, there's the 
Protestantism's wrong. You're not justified by faith only. That's the verse. I almost imagine a, a meme putting it on Martin Luther's face. Right? That would be the response to Protestantism. So first of all, the idea that the scripture is fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is not a statement that Abraham became justified before God when he offered at Isaac. Let me remind you of something. The offering of Isaac occurs in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Do you know where it says he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? Genesis 15. There's a lot of text between there. The justification occurred back in Genesis 15. You know how much time is separating those two chapters? Decades. One of the things that happens in between there is Isaac is born, and then at the age of 13 gets circumcised. And so you have, you have decades between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. So the offering of Isaac is decades after God says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness in Genesis 15. So the fulfilling, how does the fulfilling work? It's made full. It's brought to an end for which it was designed. Abraham was justified by faith alone before God and he was shown to be so before men in such a way as to bring glory to God. Abraham was a friend of God far before them. He's called a friend of God by men because of the evidence. You see, verse 24, you see. In other words, you are able to tell that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And here's the other thing. That word only, that word only, in the Greek it's monon. I have it highlighted there for you. Monon is not an adjective. The word faith is a noun. Adjectives attached to nouns. The word monon is an adverb. It attaches to justified. What does that mean? It means that there's more than one type of justification. There's justification before God, and there's justification before men. So we're not justified only by faith, but we're also justified by works. We're justified by faith in front of God, and we're justified by works in front of men. That's the point. So what I'd like to do is to go to those texts in Paul. Go to Galatians chapter 1. First of all, this is like a good heist movie. Okay, Let's lay the stakes out. Galatians 1. Right after 2 Corinthians. Okay. Galatians 1. We're looking at verses 6 through 10. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you 
and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven, kind of like a trembling demon, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. The Greek word there is anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. There are not many doctrines that have an apostolic curse attached to it. Having another gospel is one of them. This is saying, if you have another gospel, go to hell. That's what it's saying. If you have another gospel, go to hell. This is especially about teachers. Teachers will be held to a higher responsibility. And if a teacher comes to you with another gospel, if I preach a false gospel from the pulpit, and it's not just some ambiguity where it gets corrected by questioning or whatever, it's something where I hold to it upon questioning, you need to swiftly kick me out of office and kick me out of the church that, this, that Satan would scourge my flesh that I might be brought to repentance. That is the appropriate response. The appropriate response to another gospel. The gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ as the only mediator. That's the gospel. That if you replace it, let you be anathema. So we get to chapter 3, and what we have is a confrontation where Paul is reasserting the gospel. And what we have is the famous line where he quotes the same thing James does. Go to Galatians 3, verse 6. Galatians 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, you see it's the same thing that James is quoting. So if you, if you take the way that James 2 is twisted... Normally, people are putting it forward and they'll say, see, Abraham's counted as righteous before God by faith and works. Okay, well, Paul is going to very clearly use it a different way. So let's look at what Paul says. Verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You see how he's teaching there that the same gospel that we believe is the gospel that was preached to Abraham? That quote is from Genesis 15 also. Abraham received the gospel from God in Genesis 15. And he believed it in Genesis 15. And it was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse of the law. 
For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Do you see how that's the same doctrine that James taught? That if you don't keep all of the law, then you're condemned by the law? That's the same doctrine. 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. Paul makes it so explicit. Which justification is Paul talking about? Justification in the sight of God. If James is talking about justification in the sight of God, and Paul is talking about justification in the sight of God, they cannot both be right. It is not the same. It's not the same. They are different doctrines if they're both talking about the same justification. And the Bible would be false. Paul is talking about justification before God. James is talking about justification before men. I have painstakingly showed you the grammatical reasons that has to be so and the logical reasons it has to be so, looking at the text for coherence. But you see how obvious it is that Paul is talking about justification before God. Verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. That's the covenant of grace. The just by faith shall live. The just shall live by faith. Versus the covenant of works. The man who does them shall live by them. Law by perfect obedience, sorry, life by perfect obedience, or life by grace through faith. They are two different covenants. Christ, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, do you see how plainly Paul is teaching here that Christ as our substitute takes the curse for us? So that our curse that we are owed under the law is paid for by a substitute. Now, there's more that I'd like to go through here. But let's go to Romans. Go back three books. Go to the left. Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the same thing that James was quoting, isn't it? So what does he say? Let's go to verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Wow, Paul's really explicit about who he's talking about being justified in front of. And James makes it abundantly clear by the context that he's talking about a profession. Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So if it's by works, it's not of grace. If it's by works, it's not of grace. Verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, 
his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Is Paul talking about ceremonial works of the Jewish law? No. He's talking about sin, period. Inti Wright is a heretic. Anybody who tells you that Paul is telling you that you have to, don't have to keep a ceremonial law anymore, but you do have to do works to be justified before God, that's heresy. Let them be anathema. This is the true gospel. Pristine, pure, delivered from heaven. This is the water of life. Verse 9, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Did he need to do the good work of circumcision? Did he need to get baptized before he was saved? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. There's the forgiveness of sins, and here we have the idea of a righteousness counted to us by faith. And circumcision is a symbol for that. By the way, notice this. Verse 11 says that circumcision is a sign of the righteousness by faith. So is baptism. Oftentimes you will hear Baptists say that baptism needs to occur after faith. And they will say because baptism is a sign of faith. Well, circumcision is also a sign of faith. But God commanded that it be given to children before they have faith. It is not necessary that a sign of faith be given after the reality of faith. The sign must be given when God commands it. So after a profession or when a child is born into the house, those are times when baptism must be given. And that was when circumcision had to be given, even though both of them are signs of faith. So we see here, this text is clearly teaching that Abraham received the gospel before the Gentiles received it, and he's counted as righteous in God's sight, not man's sight. And so we see that Paul is plainly teaching that. We've looked at all the cues of how to understand James. Go back to the handout. We've looked at the cues of how to understand James. Either these two texts, these three texts, are able to be aligned or they aren't. If they aren't able to be aligned, find another religion. If they are able to be aligned, then what we have, the only view that does that, is the Protestant view of justification by grace alone through faith alone in the mediatorial work of Christ alone. Page 10. Verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So, Rahab, If we interpret this as justification before God, then the idea is Rahab's a harlot. She's a pagan. She's not an Israelite. She receives Israelite spies 
into her whorehouse, let's be real here, into her whorehouse, and then sends them off by lying, by lying to the civil authority, and those are the works she's justified by. Okay? If it, on the other hand, is justification before men, what you have is the fact that she claims to believe that Yahweh is the God above all gods, that is given evidence by the fact that she risks her life for the spies and sends them off to avoid them being caught. Rahab's justification is a justification that's demonstrative before men. It's not forensic. It's not legal before God. Now, verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so that faith without works is dead also. So we have the idea of the body without the spirit being dead, and faith without works is dead. And that faith, by the way, remember the word that and how that points us back to the profession? Because we're talking about a profession the whole time, because that's the context, and the word that helps us to realize we're talking about the same thing. The body is filled with the spirit, and the profession is filled with works. Profession without works is dead. A profession of faith without works is evidencing itself to be a dead profession of faith, either because the external evidence is not present, and there's an immature believer who just doesn't give evidence of being a believer, and needs to be prodded by people saying, no, you can't come to the Lord's table yet. Or, there's an internal faith that's false. And there's a dead faith and a dead profession with dead works. So go to page 11 now. Thought you were done. You're getting close. So here's the doctrine, okay? There are three types of justification that I need you to be aware of in Scripture. There's state of justification, which is like God is righteous in himself. There's demonstrative justification. There's showing other people to be righteous. Okay, or showing yourself to be righteous. And there's forensic justification. Being declared to be righteous. So when a court says not guilty, or a court says you're in the right, that's justification. That's external. God declares us just. That's the court. That's the judge. He declares us just. We are not in ourselves righteous. And we don't have any ability to demonstrate that we're righteous to God because he's pretty good at reading your mind and knows that you are a wretched hypocrite. Me too. Me too. So the only way you're going to get by is if he provides a righteousness that's perfect, that you didn't generate the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone, apart from works, that it might be of grace, that you have nothing to boast about. That is how we are justified before God. Now, the word is used, right? God brings the word to us. We're justified by the preaching of the word. God causes us to believe the word by his powerful grace. We're justified by grace. We're justified through faith. He gives us faith. We're justified based upon the merits of Christ. We're justified by Christ. And we're 
declared just by God, were justified by his judicial pronouncement. So that's how we are counted as just. Now, before men, men can't read our minds. So how do they accept our profession? By looking at our works. That's what this book is about. So I want you to go to page 13. Here's the doctrine of justification by faith alone laid out in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Look at section 1. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them. So God calls by his Holy Spirit. He causes us to be righteous in his sight, not by making us righteous inside enough, but by pardoning their sins. It's a legal action as the judge. He pardons, he forgives, he says, I count your debt as forgiven. And by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Why? Why righteous? Not for anything wrought in them, right? Not because of some work done into us. Not by a Holy Spirit work in us. Not by Holy Spirit works that come out of us. Or done by them. But for Christ's sake alone. In other words, Christ is looked upon as having kept the law. His obedience is counted to us. Nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing. Faith isn't looked on as, well, that was good enough. You ever heard that? I remember hearing that as a kid. I heard a preacher tell me one time, you know, God has lowered his standard. He used to require perfect obedience to his law. But now, all you have to do is barely put your foot over the bar because he has very ineffective pole vaulters on his team. And so, you can get over that bar even if you couldn't pull vault over the works of the law. Right? So that idea, this idea that justification is by faith and faith is the thing that we're counted as having done. No, we're connected to the works of Christ. So faith itself is not the thing that's imputed to us. It's Christ's obedience. Now look at this. You see the little comma set? The act of obedience. Sorry, the act of believing. Faith itself, comma, the act of believing, comma, That's called an interrupter clause. You know what that's doing? It's defining what faith is. The Westminster Confession plainly teaches that faith and belief are the same thing. So if anybody tells you belief isn't enough, even the demons believe and tremble. In the Greek, the word is pistuo, which is the word for believe or to have faith. The word believe and faith are different in English because of a grammatical weirdness of our language. Faith is not a verb. So you can't faith. I can't be faithing. Right? You believe. I'm believing. That's the same thing. So we turn it into a verb and we use the word believe or believing. So there's no evangelical obedience, no gospel obedience that is imputed to us as our righteousness. Go to the semicolon. But imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on Him and His righteousness by faith. Notice the receiving and the resting are by faith. It's not receiving in some sort of like physical way. It's not like you catch a football, right? This receiving is not a distinct act from believing. And the resting is not a distinct act from believing. You rest by faith. So, and what's faith, by the way? Oh, it's believing. Because what the text just said. 
The Westminster Confession is not written by a bunch of bumbling idiots or chat GPT that just like puts things together in some sort of a mishmash of words. They were defining their own terms to be very clear. The act of believing or faith are the same thing. And receiving and resting are by faith. So here's what you'll do. You'll have people come, and, and here's what you'll have in reform circles. Jump ahead with me now. Jump ahead with me now to page 15. 72. What is justifying faith? And they pull this out, and they're so smug when they do it. They go, justifying faith isn't just believing. It's not just assenting to truths. Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and a word, and word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and His righteousness therein held forth. See, you can't just assent. You have to receive and you have to rest. And those are different psychological activities. And normally they use those three parts, but notice that the assenting, the receiving, and the resting, none of them is understanding. So now all of a sudden we've got four psychological parts. Notitia, sensus, fiducia, and resting. Okay, this is what happens. Okay, this, is, this is how people try to pervert this, even in reform circles. Let's, let's think about this. Here's how they go, go down. Look at uh, point one there. Okay? How heretics twist this text. They'll say, not only assenting is necessary as a psychological act, but you also have to receive Christ, and that's different than believing him. And resting on Christ is different than believing that there's nothing more to do. That's how they want you to understand this text. So here's what it actually means. Point two, not only assent to X, but also to Y and Z. See how simple that is? Not only assent to this, but that and the other thing also. That's what it's saying. So now let's walk through it in a little more detail. Look at the next sentence. Saving faith not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but also assents to the truths about the person of Christ, and assents to the truth that Christ has done everything we need for our justification, and nothing more need be done. We can rest in his work and not add anything to it. Christ is held forth in the gospel, which, by the way, is news. It's declarative sentences. It's propositions. And we're to assent to them. Which one is a twisting of that text? Which one is following consistently with the language of the Westminster Assembly? People try to smuggle in something more than believing doctrine here. Those people are twisting the Reformed faith. Stand open to comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Boyston.
Yeah, so, um, so first of all, um, the scriptures plainly teach that there's a completion of the scriptures. And it teaches that in 1 Corinthians 13, that when the perfect has come, the partial will pass away. And if you read 1 Corinthians 13, it's very plain that the partial revelations are words of knowledge and new prophecies and tongues. When the partial is complete, sorry, when the perfect is complete, the partial passes away. So then we have the question of how do we know when the complete is given? Daniel chapter 9 plainly teaches in the center of the chapter that the scriptures will be complete after the Messiah comes and at the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. It prophesies more than 400 years before the destruction of the temple and before the coming of Christ that Christ will come in that time frame and that the temple will be destroyed in that time frame and that when that happens, sacrifices will be complete and so will prophets and visions. So their claim is that this book was a book that was given to a special separated tribe of Israel that was over here in the New World, right? And so then you go, well, how do we tell if these are both true? Do they cohere with each other? Because if they're claiming that the Bible is true, then, but they think it's incomplete, then the thing to do is to lay side by side contradictory texts. And you say, you have to choose one. If the Mo- Book of Mormon's true, then, then the Bible's false. And since Mormons claim that the Bible is true and the Book of Mormon's true, Mormonism's false. And then, however, if the Bible's true, then the Book of Mormon must be false. And so you want to lay side by side. There are various pages, various passages that teach justification by faith and works in the Book of Mormon. And there are other things. For example, they teach that there's a generation of Jesus Christ's divinity, that he, that he starts at a point in time, that he's not eternal. And so you can show them the eternality of God the Son and show them how that contradicts. Right? So there's a number of, of key doctrines to be able to go through um, that you can just do. I think the best thing to do is to simply have ready passages of the Book of Mormon and passages of Scripture and show them they contradict. They can reject it. They can run away. They can throw up their hands and scream. But you've planted in their minds the truth claims of the Bible. And the word of God is God's hammer. And it will either bring them to repentance or it will break them under the curse. <coughs> Any other comments, questions, objections? Pastor Reese, uh, could you clarify under the quote from chapter 11, uh, the confession, the interrupting clause, the act of believing? Because it's not immediately apparent to me how we understand it as an interrupting clause versus just a list of things. Sure. So um, it's either a list that's an explanatory list, so it's saying that uh, faith itself is the act of believing, or it's an interrupter clause. Because there is no uh, conjunction, I would interpret it as an interrupter clause rather than a list. Okay. Um, and so, um, so not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them. So you're saying, I see, you're saying it's faith itself, the, uh, the act of believing, or... Uh, so the word the there as a definitive article helps us to understand that it's explaining. Because if it were just, you would expect it to say, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them. Making the act of believing, um, that, that's what faith is. Um, so so, so you, you, you view it not as explaining what faith is. Yeah, more of the human act of 
believe in versus a divine uh, granting of the ability to believe and have faith. Okay, so do you agree that faith that we have is faith that we, we, we are the ones faithing and not God? Yes. And we, and we both agree that the Holy Spirit's the one that gives the faith. Yes. So when we have faith, it's a gift. Yes. And we're the ones committing the act of faithing. Yes. Okay. So how are those different then? The act of believing versus faith. Uh, I assumed in this case it might be distinguished from sort of a Arminian view that we, without the work of God, would believe on him. That was, without viewing it as an interruption clause, that's how I would, would interpret that. Okay. So I agree that the point of the text is um, that no evangelical obedience of any variety, whether it's faith or anything else, yes. is what's counted to us. Yeah. So an evangelical obedience is, a, is an obedience that comes from the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. And so the point is that none of those acts, whether it's our mental act or whether it's our external acts, yes. are the things that are counted to us. But faith and belief are the same thing. Yes. And, if we, and if we try to make it into a list, then it becomes a distinguisher. And so I, I think that the idea that faith itself and it's defining it as the act of believing. Um, if, we want to, if we want to make it into a distinguisher, then I, I think we'd have to go, okay, well, fine, what's the difference? Sure. Okay. okay. Thank you. All right, anything else? Great, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would cause this word to help us to be well ready to defend against false gospels. You'd help us to have a clear understanding of the book of James, chapter 2. That you'd help us to have a clear understanding of our own confessional standard and to be ready to oppose those who would seek to twist the gospel, which is not able by itself to be defeated. But we ask, Father, that you would help us to not adopt another gospel, a false gospel, but to hold firm to that which has been delivered to us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.